I'm travel journalist Catherine Romine, and this is Banyan Tree's Compass Podcast, a series in which I talk with change makers who are living purposeful, inspiring lives about the experiences that have changed them and their visions for the future. Today, I'm so happy to be introducing Kathy Eldon, a best-selling author of 17 books, who's also an award-winning film and television producer, speaker, and journalist who's worked across three continents. She is the co-founder with her daughter of Creative Visions Foundation, which is an incredible nonprofit organization and United Nations NGO that empowers and supports creative activists around the globe to raise awareness of critical issues and impact positive change through meaningful storytelling. The organization was directly inspired by the life of Kathy's son, Dan Eldon, who was a Reuters photojournalist, activist, and artist tragically killed while working in Somalia at just 22 years old. Her latest project is a transformative series of children's books and learning apps called Harper and the Yellow Goggles. Kathy, I've been so looking forward to our conversation, and I'm reaching you at home in California. Is that right? That's right. And it's very early in the morning for you. So I'm, I'm, I'm dazzled to think you want to talk to me that badly. This is really exciting. Thank you. Yeah, it is all my pleasure. So to begin with, I'd love to ask you to look back a bit. What do you consider your frontier moment? And maybe you have several, but please tell me what personal experiences inspired a dramatic shift in your life that have led you in a new direction and catalyzed your path. Well, thank you. I think there are plenty of frontier moments, but a true frontier for me was when together with my then husband and two little kids, Dan, age seven, and Amy, age three, we moved to Nairobi, Kenya. And mm. the year was 1977. I was a very frustrated housewife living in London, although I'm American, I was living in London with my British husband, dying inside, dying, uh, living in the suburbs, uh, having been brought up that I was going to change the world somehow, uh, <laughs> but not doing anything at all except laundry. And I wrote children's books and I was miserable. And with my husband, we moved to Kenya and I just was confronted with this like technicolor dream world of everybody being a different color, everybody, you know, like soldiering on under often really challenging uh, circumstances and dealing with major obstacles, but with the most positive attitudes. Mm. And I had been a, a writer of, you know, a, a really just children's stories, social history books, but I talked my way into every opportunity I could get to write. And it was 50 word summaries of like, you know, garages and <laughs> stores. And then I was a cookbook uh, editor and the uh, eating out guide in the newspaper. And then I managed to talk my way into being able to tell stories about uh, people. Every single story that I got to tell inspired me to believe in the power of creative problem solving. And because in Kenya, you know, there's no social services or there were uh, virtually none, it, it, particularly in those days, but they're just really hard to get. And so if people had a problem, they had to roll up sleeves and solve it. They were mm -hmm. creative, they were active, they were inspiring, not only to me, but also to my son, Dan, who was inspired himself to roll up sleeves and find solutions to problems, always in collaboration with others, because that's the key to everything is collaboration. Mm -hmm. That sounds incredible. My sister and her son, my nephew, who's now about to be three years old, live in Nairobi. And I think it's just seems like the most incredible place to grow up to give you a Lucky particular worldview. Yes. 
Yeah, well, when I go back to Nairobi, I'd love to try to find them because it's the most transformative thing, you know, to see great poverty and resilience in the face of poverty and then the sort of climb to middle class and beyond in a country that initially was under colonialism until 1963. So when I arrived there, it was really recently under the colonial masters, and there were still strong powers that held them in that colonialist mentality. So it was very interesting to see the the creativity of our African friends in overcoming some of the strictures of colonialism. (laughs) I can imagine. I'm sure that was life-changing for your children as well. Yeah, and, and I think for Dan to see that creativity and activism and what it led to with him, because when he was 19, he led a group of 15 kids across Africa to bring aid to a refugee camp in Malawi. Mm-hmm. And it was a direct result of growing up in, in Kenya, you know, to mm-hmm. A, go into Land Rovers across war-torn Africa uh, and to believe you could do it. And, you know, to have the creativity to be able to solve problems along the way. And again, that would not have been possible growing up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where I grew up. Some people do it, I'm sure. Right. But it would have been a little harder. Right. For sure. That might not even exist for you. That kind of possibility. Exactly. Mm -hmm. No. People think we were pretty crazy. And my daughter, Amy, looks back and she was only 15 when she went on that safari and said, Mom, what were you thinking? You know, how how can you possibly... But she had a phenomenal life-changing experience and it set her up for the rest of her life. And I know it would be hard to do it now, but I'm so grateful that our kids were able to do it then. Wow. I can imagine. (laughs) You have endured unimaginable losses and painful experiences during your life. For one, Dan's death. I can only imagine that must affect you every day. But how have you been able to stay resilient in your life? And how have you dealt with or conquered or moved through these traumas in positive or productive ways? Well, that's such a lovely question. And I would say that everybody listening to your podcast has endured incredible, painful times and loss. And, you know, losing a child, they they somehow rank as one of the really, really, really hard things. And I would validate that from my own experience. But I think that everybody goes through really hard times where we lose possibilities. We lose the opportunity that we thought maybe was there for us and and doesn't seem to exist. So it's, you know, yes, I, I lost a child. I went through a painful divorce. There are things in my life that were really hard, but, but I'd say that everybody out there has gone through tough stuff. And then it's the question is how do we transform that in whatever way we can? And I believe passionately in the power of taking that pain, taking that loss, taking that disappointment, whatever it is that is an obstacle. It's something that you can collapse into and and you probably will need to do that for a while, you know, to grieve whatever that loss was and profoundly grieve it where, where, you know, where you feel that that is part of your journey. But then rather than allow it to become your script to become the the thing that stopped you from doing whatever it is that you might have believed you could dream about or, or want to do then really find a way to take that grieving energy that love that you had for something else someone else mm-hmm. and turn it into 
new purpose or new meaning or a force for good. And it could be as simple as creating a window box, you know, and, and watering it and putting fertilizer on it and, and, and commemorating that this is new beginnings, that new life exists. And that, you know, we need rain and we need lots of fertilizer and lots of manure, hard stuff. But try to find a way. And again, collaboration is a really powerful thing. And and the loneliness that sometimes our our grief and sadness can lead us to isolating ourselves and finding ways to bring other people into, onto, around whatever it is that you choose to do is is a very important thing. And for me, I my son was murdered by a mob. And it was a young photojournalist who was killed by a mob while he was trying to tell a story of injustice in mm-hmm. Somalia. So my initial response to that was to tell everybody about the role of journalists who were risking their lives to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and that could be even a journalist in a local newspaper who's covering the really hard stuff, who is being traumatized and getting PTSD by what he, she, they are seeing. Mm-hmm. And so it's, so that for me was like super important. And I was able to gather all my energy. And I said to the Reuters suit, you know, the managing director of Reuters, when we came to the memorial service, um, Mr. Wood, you know, I want to transform the horror of what happened to these four young men who, who died into a force for good. And mm-hmm. we did. You know, we were able to create great awareness of, of journalists and we did conferences and books and a, a film called Dying to Tell the Story because I was so driven by that passion not to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to survive. I wanted to thrive, but survival in the beginning was all I could do. And now, honestly, I, I absolutely thrive and I feel Dan is a very noisy spirit on my shoulder, encouraging me to be a bolder, bolder and do more and be more, you know. So I think of him with pure joy. That's so amazing. I think you wouldn't want his legacy to go unremembered. And so it was sort of on your shoulders, it sounds like, to make sure that he is still a presence and his work and his life was so meaningful. I think we were lucky because he left behind 20 journals. Mm -hmm. So we had beautiful journals that have been turned into four books, three documentaries and a feature film, you know, so, and that's unusual. I mean, most 22 year olds don't do give us that advantage, but even, you know, whatever that loss was that you have sustained, just find a way to put the grieving energy into something positive. That's, you know, my main message in life is Mm -hmm. transforming and the positivity. There's a, a whole science of positive psychology now that's being studied at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm incorporating those, actually, it's not beliefs, it's scientific studies that show that our brains are, are wired differently when we are able to think in a positive way. And it's not Pollyanna. It's huh. just like, it's a practice, it, it's a tool, it's yeah. a way of being and seeing the world in a different way. And, and incorporating that, because you know it works, it's good for you. And our bodies, everything's linked. Every cell of our body is linked and our our minds are incredibly powerful. Oh, I love that. That's really cool. So sort of going back to a bit of a harsh reality in a way, the world has so many heartbreaking issues plaguing it, natural disasters, human rights, I mean, people against each other. It's, there's no way to fix everything, but For you, what do you find to be the power in art, creative expression, storytelling, and how how do you think they give hope? Do they help you to find personal harmony in your life? 
Very much so. And honestly, the only way we are going to shift mindset, consciousness in our world to believe that every single individual has a role to play in creating the world we want or our children want is by the power of storytelling. As storytelling can be through art, music, dance, drama, film. How do you, how, how do we tell stories that, and communicate them to other people, whether it's one person or whether it's uh, a continent or a planet? You know, it's going to be through the power of storytelling. So to that end, we are working very hard to communicate a program of a curriculum that we've been developing for 20 years, uh, which we call Creative Change Makers. So it teaches kids the power of what well, it teaches kids to learn about the Declaration of Human Rights mm-hmm. and the Sustainable Development Goals from the United Nations, which teach them what they have the right to. You know, they have the right to clean water. They have the right to good air. They have a right to education and all kinds of things that, you know, every individual should claim as a right. And then we teach them how to tell stories that will mobilize other people around those rights. Uh So we're right now getting this to 44 million kids through discovery education. And I reckon if we can get 44 million kids or whatever percentage of those kids to understand that they have a right to the future they want, not the one that's being foisted upon them by all this horrific stuff that's going on, that kids will be a mighty force for creating the good in their lives that they so desperately want. Mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt said, do what you can with what you have where you are. So for me, that the what I can is to use what I've got around me for people sitting without power of a, a, a communications network, mm-hmm. then you be that force, you be that change, you be that person. If you're a, a, a bubby or a nana or a grandma, you know that you imbue your grandchildren with that you imbue your children with a sense of positive you can't just sit back and say we're going to hell in a handbasket honestly yes there's the yes <laughs> and it's the okay but damn it on my watch you know for me that's not what I'm going to to do and I look at Zelensky in Ukraine and all those incredible Ukrainians who are standing up to the brutality of a very sick despot mm-hmm. and admire you know admire them I look at what's happened in Turkey, the desperation of people in Turkey and Syria. You know, it's up to us to do what we can to help those those folks. Because mm-hmm. you remember the, the wonderful quote from the Holocaust, essentially, it's, they came from the Jews, but nobody came, you know, because we were not them. They came, the, the, the gypsies, we didn't do anything because we were not them. They came for us and there was nobody around to do anything. And I, I paraphrased it badly. But one day we're going to be the ones who need it. So let's be proactive and being the ones who help. Mm -hmm. I think the next generations, our children, their children are our only hope in a way because there's so many things that need to be shifted and changed and redirected. And we have to tell them that they can do that. They're capable. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do with a little project that I'm doing, which is getting bigger and bigger. It's called Harper in the Yellow Goggles. And it's about a little girl who is a warrior. She wants to be a warrior, but she's a warrior. And everything seems to be going wrong. And her Nana swoops in with a pair of yellow goggles and says, put on yellow goggles when you go out to play and you'll see the world in a very different way. You see the good and the bad, the glad and the sad, greet grumps with a grin and find magical ways out of all the trouble you're in. And best of all, you'll see the we instead of just the me, 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 which is a stupendous way to be. And it's it's not rose-colored glasses, it's yellow goggles. And it's really about 
finding solutions to challenges and overcoming obstacles. And it's really fun. <laughs> I can't wait to read that to my daughter when it's out there. Um, Thank you. I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah. Obviously with this, it's evident in so much of your work that you're passionate about education and youth empowerment. And I think about this a lot. The Iroquois, I believe it was, think seven generations ahead when they're making decisions about what to do today to make sure it will benefit their descendants in seven generations. Oh. So I'm curious if this is something you've thought about throughout your careers and projects and how much does awareness of the future and future generations really dictate your work and your day-to-day? You know, that's such a beautiful question. And I, I've heard that quote and, you know, we have here in the States, we have a whole line that's seventh generation of cleaning supplies. And, and that philosophy is ultimately the only way we're going to solve things. I have to say that I don't think I was thinking as far ahead as I am now, as an elder, as it were, and, and as a matriarch, as someone who is acutely aware of how the world has shifted in my lifetime, much less, you know, I have a cookbook that my grandmother wrote, and she was born in the 1880s. And she used a wooden stove and drove a, in a carriage when she was a little girl. Mm-hmm. And when you think that within my memory, there was my grandmother's memory, and now I am where I am, and I'm a, I'm a Nana. And I can look ahead and see what that world could look like if we do not wake up, if we are not awoke. <laughs> and that is a politically charged phrase, but I think it's a terrific phrase. Why would we not wish to be awakened about the issues that are so profoundly impacting us? So yes, I am far more conscious and aware of future generations at this point in my life. And I would urge people not to be so slow in being aware of future generations as I may have been. It is incredible to think about the change in a lifetime. When you look at, you know, my parents, I think about, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the internet. Not every single person had an iPad or a a laptop computer. And the way that the world is connected is so dramatically different now you don't have to write a letter to someone you can just get a video call going on your phone or computer and that's not even in a hundred years that's in a few decades of time so i'd love to ask with the theme of possibility in mind where would you like to see the planet a hundred years from now can you paint a picture of what you hope or dream could be a reality in a century if you know we start doing a lot right (laughs) I, I love that. Again, beautiful questions. I, I see a world where technology is tackling a lot of the profoundly challenging issues. And I say that I've just been to the MIT Media Lab, which is the innovation lab at Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston. And I've seen some of the extraordinary solutions, whether it's around cities or around energy. My husband is is working on hydrogen energy for all as an affordable, sustainable energy that is the cleanest and purest possible sort of energy for people. And it's really exciting to see solution-based thinking, you know, to be able to find solutions that are from the planet. And that comes also, I call it planet medicine, you know, mm-hmm. where you're finding solutions for healing us from the planet. And it's it's all possible. It will require enormous collaboration, open source, you know, so that people aren't hoarding the information that's going to sort us out. It will require, and I don't know how we get there, a massive shift in corporate thinking 
because their grandchildren, their children are going to die too. You know, if you're head of a big gas and oil company, you have children and you have grandchildren and you want a future for them. And it's not going to happen if we're burning coal uh, at the, in the way that we are now, because we won't be able to breathe and the, the planet won't work. Uh, water solutions right here in I'm in Los Angeles. We could solve a lot of our water issues if we were to capture the water that we get and create new wetlands and reservoirs and ways to save the water rather than it all rushing into the ocean, which is what's happening right now. And then thinking ahead right now in Salt Lake City, they're building in vast numbers of housing, which of course people need houses, but they're building it where there's no water to be had. You know, it's an arid climate. I mean, these are in major issues. And yes, you can make water out of certain kinds of air, but it's not going to be in our arid climates. So it requires an awful lot of collective thinking and then individual action, I would say, to create the change we wish to see and we have to be. What do you think is the best case scenario in a hundred years if, if everything does get collaborative and open source and we're all sharing unique, innovative ideas? Right. I would like to think that on an individual basis, that we are living in energy efficient houses and and finding ways to conserve the precious water that we now realize is is more precious than diamonds or or gold, you know, mm-hmm. that that we are using our resources in the wisest possible way, that we are governed by not despots, not autocrats, not people who are thinking only of their own greedy desires, but understanding the importance of the collective, of those others around them. And government is absolutely radically important. Leadership is radically important. So that we're leading with ethical leaders who have values that translate into decisions that will be made to benefit the children of the planet. I use that phrase. We are all children of the planet, the birds and the bees, the flowers and the trees, Mm -hmm. and all of us human beings are children of a planet and the planet is troubled. So I would see that government is leading us, that individuals understand their role and that the collective is something that has a much brighter future than what we're perceiving right now. Well, hopefully some of those children that you're helping to empower will become those leaders. Yes, your daughter, one of them, for sure. I really hope so. I really, really appreciate talking with you. It was so wonderful and so inspiring. Thank you so much. It's really a joy to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.